everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are back with some true crime. I know a few weeks ago I was like, yeah, I'm going to take a break from true crime for, for a while. And, I know. But well, we, we did we say we're going to sprinkle some in still. Definitely. So, Well, it's just like, I mean, our show's in the true crime category, and there's not exactly a category for paranormal. Yeah, true. So otherwise, you know, hopefully we'd be doing well there. But yeah. And I still see lots of comments. Yeah. People love the, the serial killers and the true crime. Well, so. it's just like, it, it's definitely a part of, of what makes the show... Yeah. what it is i mean it's it's definitely focusing more on the darker more morbid side of of life and and some of the more real life terrors yeah. that are out there and today we're going to be covering one of the most evil vile sickening human beings to ever walked the earth ed kemper and buckle up this one is a, a very disturbing one um, but it's it's one of those that's just i don't know leaves you shaking your head at <laughs> yeah, the end of it i mean i know. Sometimes these serial, I mean, that's the thing with serial killers is like there, there's things that are intriguing about it and interesting, um, which I don't think really anybody understands why. I think it's just human nature that we are, you know, these people do these horrendous, horrific things and we're like, how did this happen? Yeah. Why did this happen? And so there's something intriguing about diving into the past and history of these individuals to try to at least take a look and see. You know, does it make sense for why he ended up the way that he did? Or was this just sort of, you know, one of those anomalies mm-hmm. with just some humans almost like straight out of the womb or just evil. Born to kill. Just absolutely evil. But yeah, I thought it was important to, you know, do some more true crime. I mean, I'm personally, I cover a lot of true crime on my other podcast, Mile Higher, but we stay away from more of the darker, more sinister cases, I guess you could say, more graphic. And so this show kind of allows me to go into some of the more gruesome killers that are out there and we've covered a lot of serial killers on lights out oh yeah over the past two years yep. so we're definitely gonna keep covering serial killers here on the show and also we're gonna cover some other just sort of true crime cases that maybe are not as covered as much but also have paranormal elements maybe linked to them yeah that'd be awesome yeah so we've got a lot more of that coming for you but this episode of lights out is brought to you by raycon and hell fresh but let's just go ahead and dive into the horrific world of Ed Kemper. So Ed Kemper gave a new meaning to hitchhiking in the 1970s. During this time, love was free and the hippie movement was liberating young women. And Ed Kemper, also known as the co-ed killer, took advantage of the countless hitchhikers along the streets near Santa Cruz, California. And someone's innocent need for a ride quickly ended in a very, very horrific way. So let's go back and take a look at the early life of this monster. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California. He was the middle child and only son of Clarnell Kemper and Edmund Kemper Jr. Edmund Jr. was a World War II veteran and after his service in the war, he tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific. He later returned to California where he worked as an electrician and raised a family. The two of them had a rough marriage and rarely got along. And while Ed was growing up, their household was filled with screaming matches and lots of aggression. Clarnell constantly complained about her husband's job as an electrician. She always belittled him and said he wasn't good enough for her. Edmund Jr. once said that the suicide missions in wartime and the nuclear weapon testings were nothing 
compared to living with his wife. She also said that she bothered him more than the 396 days of fighting on the front lines. Despite their troubles, they had three kids together, and their household was rarely functional. When Ed was born, he was 13 pounds, and by the age of four, he was a foot taller than the rest of his classmates. Not only was he abnormally large, but he also formed strange behaviors as a child. So just like many serial killers out there, one thing that many have in common is the abuse of animals and from a young age. So just a forewarning here, there is some of that in this episode. So if you find this disturbing, maybe skip ahead a little bit. But when Ed was only 10 years old, he took his pet cat into the backyard, dug a hole, and threw the cat inside. He then shoveled the dirt on top of the cat, burying it alive. He waited for a few minutes to pass before making sure that the cat was dead from a lack of oxygen. Then he decided to dig up the dead carcass. As he held the dead cat in his hands, he took out a knife and cut its head off. He then took a large stick from the backyard and carved a point into its end. Taking the makeshift spear, he stuck the head of the dead cat on it and propped it up in the yard. When his mother got home, she accused him of killing the family cat, but Ed denied it. From a young age, he would use his charisma to lie, and when he lied, he felt a sense of pleasure that he had never felt before. There was something special about murder and lying that he became addicted to. The more he lied to his family about the cat, the more pleasurable the killing became, and this poor cat was the first of many. When he was 13, he killed the other family cat, thinking it loved his younger sister more than him. He then cut the cat into pieces and kept some of the parts in his bedroom closet until his mother found it one day. As you can probably imagine, when his mother found the cat, she was absolutely horrified at what her son had did. She screamed at him, hoping he would never do it again, but Ed's behavior was not going to change. And as time went on, the Kemper household had to put up with Ed's strange and violent behavior. One day when his older sister Susan teased him and asked why he wouldn't kiss his teacher, he said, if I kiss her, quote, I'd have to kill her first. He would then steal his father's old World War II bayonet and sneak out of the house some nights. He'd go to his second grade teacher's house and watch her through the windows. At home, his sisters would get out their toys to play, only to realize that Ed had removed the doll's heads and hands. And when he tried to play with his sisters, he always wanted to play the games, gas chamber or electric chair, where he tied up his youngest sister and flipped an imaginary switch on the wall, which what on earth? Where did he even come up with these ideas? Ed would then pretend to die from electrocution or gas as his sister watched in horror. And to Ed, from this young of an age, this was a rip-roaring good time for him. And because of his strange behavior, he obviously didn't get along with his sisters very well. One time, his oldest sister tried to push him in front of a moving train. Another time, when they were out at a local pool, she pushed him into the deep end where he almost drowned. This was just normal family life in Ed's family. Ed's parents got divorced in 1957 and Ed was pretty close with his father, but he had to live with his mother in Montana. Ed's mother was abusive to say the least. She would drink almost daily and she would verbally humiliate him and belittle him constantly. She also made fun of his size because Ed was six foot four by the time he was 15 years old. It wasn't a secret that she disliked almost everything there was about her son. One night, Ed eavesdropped on a telephone conversation that his mother had with his father, and he overheard her call him a real weirdo. And because of his strange behavior, 
Ed's mother decided to lock him in the basement because she thought he would sexually assault his sisters. He had to live in the cold cement basement with the rats, and Ed's relationship with his mother completely disintegrated. Ed saw his mother as a sick, angry woman, and later in life he thought she probably had an undiagnosed borderline personality disorder. Eventually, Ed couldn't stand living with his mother any longer. So when he was just 14 years old, he ran away from home and found where his dad lived in Van Nuys, California. But when he got to the house, he realized his father had remarried and now had a stepson. He stayed with them for a little while, but his father told him that he couldn't stay. Ed told his father that he couldn't go back and live with his wretched, horrible mother. And his father honestly agreed with him. But his father wouldn't let him stay with him. Instead, he sent Ed to live with his grandparents on a ranch in the Sierra Nevada mountains, two miles west of North Fork. And there, Ed lives in a small ranch house in the middle of nowhere, and he absolutely hated it. His grandfather suffered from dementia, and his grandmother constantly belittled Ed and his grandfather, which, as you can probably imagine, his grandmother reminded him a lot of his own mom. Even though these were his father's parents, he couldn't help but see the similarity. He got into arguments with his grandmother the same way that he did with his mother back home. So Ed tried to stay out of the house as much as he could. And surprisingly, he made a friend he called Mike at school. When he wasn't at his grandparents' house, he was usually over at Mike's. But this friendship didn't last long. One day, Mike's mother's pillowcase and their family cat went missing. And Mike swore he had no idea what happened. And his mother became very suspicious of Ed. They had no proof, but she could tell something was very off with Ed. So from there on out, she forbid Mike from hanging out with him, and for good reason too, as Ed was on the verge of a major breakdown. What's interesting to me, and this is this is something I heard, I believe in a documentary I watched, but I, I've always tried to like understand why many serial killers go after cats as opposed to dogs, which obviously we've covered uh, serial killers who have killed dogs, but oftentimes they go for cats because cats symbolize like the female essence. They were kind of a symbol for hmm. females, I guess. I mean, this is just somebody's opinion. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I thought that was kind of interesting because I think if you think back to like ancient Egypt, I think that was, you know, they held cats in high regard and I believe it was a feminine, seen as like a feminine symbol or huh, energy. That's interesting. And so by killing cats, that's like, it gives them that sort of like a mini sample of what killing women would later on give ed that the cats sort of started that for him which is really fucking weird and obviously demented but i've always tried to understand why cats yeah i always thought what did cats just, ever do to him right i always but thought I it's just because they were easy targets but that makes a lot more sense what you're saying seen as like a female which i kind of get honestly i have three cats so like i'm thinking about them like mm, they do kind of have this feminine energy to them so maybe there is something to that, but just thought I'd share that. But on August 27th, 1964, Ed was only 15 years old when he got into a heated argument with his grandmother, Maud. Sitting at the kitchen table, they screamed at each other until Ed stormed off. His grandmother thought he was going back to his room, but he was actually going to retrieve his hunting rifle that his grandfather had given him. Only a few weeks before, they had taken the rifle away since they caught Ed just outside shooting local animals for fun, but Ed knew they hid the rifle in their closet, so he went and got it. When he returned to the kitchen, his grandmother saw him holding the rifle, 
And she started immediately scolding him, saying, You better not be shooting birds again, Ed. And right as she said that, Ed lifted the rifle and aimed it straight at her head. As he pulled the trigger, Ed watched his blood and matter from her skull spray across the kitchen. When her body slumped to the floor, Ed walked up to her and fired two more rounds into her back. He then took a nearby kitchen knife and stabbed her several more times. Not long after, Ed's grandfather returned home from the grocery store and he saw him pull into the driveway, so Ed grabbed his rifle and went out to meet him. As his grandfather stepped out of the car, Ed didn't even hesitate. He aimed the rifle and shot his grandfather. While he lied there on the driveway dying, Ed didn't know what to do, as the reality of the situation had finally hit him. He actually panicked and ran back into the house where he called his mother. She told Ed to immediately call the police and wait for them to arrive. So that's exactly what he did. Still covered in blood, he sat patiently for several minutes waiting for police to arrive. And when they got there, they found the young 15-year-old and took him into custody. When they got back to the police station, they asked Ed, Why'd you kill your grandmother? And he bluntly answered their question with a cold voice. He said that he just wanted to see what it felt like. And when the police asked why he killed his grandfather, he said he didn't want him to find out that his wife was dead. And he knew that his grandfather would be angry with him. Throughout this episode, I'm going to play a few clips of some interviews that Ed did. So here's a clip of Ed talking about the first murders he committed. It started coming to a head again, so I went back down. I ran away back down there. And then a month later, I'm up living with my grandparents in the mountains, and 10 months later, I murdered them. It made it worse to be on top of a mountain. I was literally on top of a mountain when it happened. And I could sense, I sensed everybody in the world just stopping what they were doing, turning around, saw what I did, and are coming to get me. And I knew I was paranoid at that moment. I knew anybody that came up there and gave me a funny look or a fishy eye or quizzical look, I'd have blown their brains out thinking they were coming to get me. And if it had been in a city, I would have been a mass murderer at age 15. I would have killed until they gunned me down. I wouldn't have been able to reason my way out of it. I was scared to death and I was violent. I felt my back hit that wall. I was the rabbit that always ran, that always backed away, always burned his bridges. Suddenly there weren't any more. And my back hit that wall and I came out screaming and kicking and shooting. The state court deemed his crimes incomprehensible for a 15-year-old, and court psychiatrists diagnosed Ed with paranoid schizophrenia, and this would be the first of many encounters with psychiatrists in his life. He was sent to a maximum security state hospital in San Luis Obispo, California, and while there, the psychiatrists and social workers didn't believe that Ed really had paranoid schizophrenia, as he had no delusions or hallucinations, no evidence of bizarre thinking, and no interference of thought. Although his crimes were horrific and unthinkable for a 15-year-old boy to commit, they thought there was another explanation. They eventually diagnosed him with a personality trait disturbance and said he had a passive-aggressive type personality. And as time went on, they ran more tests on Ed, and the more they tried to understand his psychological conditions, the more Ed became interested in psychiatry. So much so that he began studying psychiatric tests and even gave them to other inmates. He even claimed he had developed newer tests and added his own hostility scale to one of the personality tests. He ended up knowing the tests so well that he used that knowledge to manipulate his own psychiatrists. And over the years, he also picked up a lot of tips and tricks from the sex offenders he interviewed. One of the inmates told him that it was best to leave no witnesses and always kill a woman after raping her. Ed was literally taking notes when he heard this, and he couldn't wait to use these techniques the moment he got out of the state hospital. So, he did what he did best and turned on his charm 
and told the psychiatrist exactly what they wanted to hear. And then on Ed's 21st birthday, December 18, 1969, he was released on parole, and he was sent back to live with his mother, even though the psychiatrist thought this was a terrible idea. They knew Ed had a toxic relationship with her, but the state sent him back anyway. During Ed's stay at the hospital for nearly six years, his mother had remarried and divorced again. So after moving back in with his mom, Ed surprisingly led a healthy life, or that's what he made his probation psychiatrist believe. And by November 29th, 1972, they permanently expunged his juvenile records. Imagine that. Just took murder right off of his record. One of the last things his probation psychiatrist said in their report was that Ed seemed like a very well-adjusted young man. He was intelligent and responded well to treatment and rehabilitation over the years. To add to his appearance of being rehabilitated, he went back to school and attended community college, and he even expressed interest in becoming a police officer. But because of his massive size, he was rejected from the program. By this point, Ed was six foot nine and over 200 pounds. Local police officers even gave him the nickname Big Ed. And despite being turned down, he enjoyed spending time with other police officers. Throughout the week, he would go to the bar called the Jury Room, which is a popular spot for local cops to hang out. And while there, he would bother the officers and try to get on their good side with his mysterious charm. He was well-spoken and intelligent, so he could easily get someone's attention. And when he wasn't hanging out at the bar, he held down a job with the State of California Division of Highways. And if he wasn't working or at the bar bothering police, he was back home with his mother. And just like all those years ago, their relationship was as toxic as ever. The two of them would argue and fight so loud that the next-door neighbors would often overhear them screaming and throwing dishes at each other. And they would argue about anything and everything. Ed vividly remembered one of his most heated arguments was about getting his teeth cleaned. Luckily, he saved up enough money and moved out. But even then, he wouldn't get away from her. She would constantly call him or make surprise visits to his apartment. And he often ran out of money, so he'd have to crawl back to his mother to ask for some extra cash. But he tried his very best to move on the best he could. At some point during all of this, Ed had met a student at Turlock High School who he began dating. Her name was never released to the public, but they got engaged in March of 1973. We don't know that much about their relationship, but their engagement was broken off soon after. In that same year, Ed had bought a new motorcycle with the little money that he had and he decided to take it for a spin. While he was out riding on the road, the car hit him and his bike, sending him across the asphalt. He badly injured his arm, but he decided to sue the driver, and he actually ended up getting about $15,000, or $90,000 in today's money, and before he knew it, he no longer had to ask his mother for more money. He had so much money now that he ended up buying a 1969 Ford Galaxy. He loved driving that thing around town, and as he cruised the streets of California, he noticed something. Hitchhiking women could be found all along the roads. So as the hippie movement was in full swing by the 1970s, the West Coast was full of hitchhikers. Plenty of men and women were leaving their homes and fleeing to places like San Francisco. The movement was liberating and young people across the country started to catch on. It spread to the city of Santa Cruz, which is a small beach town popular for surfing and retirement. And because of the nearby university, young people came from all over the country to join the counterculture movement. As Ed drove the streets of Santa Cruz, he noticed young women traveling alone. They held out their thumbs on the side of the road, and he ended up picking up nearly 150 hitchhikers in the early 1970s. But soon he began feeling his homicidal sexual urges. He called these his little zapples. 
They drove him mad with desire. And not long after those urges began, it was only a matter of time before he started acting on them. And for the next 11 months, Ed fell into a dark sexual rage that he couldn't escape. With that being said, before we move into more of Ed's crimes, we're going to take a sponsor break and we'll be right back. So on May 7th, 1972, Ed drove his car around Berkeley, California, where he spotted two 18-year-old hitchhikers on the side of the road. They were young women from Fresno State University named Marianne Pesa and Anita Luchessa. As he pulled up to them, Ed's homicidal sexual urges took over. They told him they were looking to head to Stanford University, so Ed offered them a ride. He drove for an hour, but the two women didn't realize that Ed had driven into a wooded area and they were no longer heading towards Stanford. Ed knew the area well since he worked for the highway department. The women didn't realize something was wrong until he stopped the car in the middle of the woods. They tried to reason with him and tell him that this wasn't where they were supposed to be. But Ed stepped out of the car and they noticed how massive he was. He grabbed Marianne while pulling out a pair of handcuffs. And while bending over the seat to handcuff her, he accidentally grazed her breast with the back of his hand. He felt embarrassed, so he apologized. All the while, the two women began screaming. After handcuffing Marianne, Ed swung open the other rear door and grabbed Anita by her ankles. He dragged her out and locked her in the trunk. He then walked around the car and returned to Marianne, who screamed as tears streamed down her face. Ed then took a knife from the car and began stabbing her several times, making sure not to kill her. He then wrapped his hands around her throat and strangled her to death. Meanwhile, Anita's muffled screams came from the trunk, and with Marianne dead, he walked to the back of the car to retrieve Anita. As he opened the trunk, he stabbed her several times. And just like he did with Marianne, he strangled her until she passed. Once he was finished, he put both of their bodies in the trunk and drove back to his apartment. On his way, he noticed red and blue lights flashing in his rearview mirror, and he pulled to the side of the road. The police officer approached his car and told him he had a broken taillight. Ed played it cool and turned on his charm. He was actually polite with the officer and told him he didn't realize it was broken. All the while, the officers were doing this traffic stop and they had no idea that there were two bodies in the trunk. And Ed got let go. When Ed finally made it back to his apartment, his roommate wasn't home. So he lifted the two women from the trunk of his car and brought them into his apartment. He removed their clothing and took several photographs of their dead naked bodies. And before dismembering them, he decided to have sexual intercourse with their corpses. He then proceeded to cut up their bodies and separated the body parts into separate plastic bags before returning them to his car. He then drove out to the Santa Cruz Mountains and pitched the plastic bags, but he decided to keep the heads for a bit longer. For a few hours, he had sex with both of their severed heads before pitching them into the wilderness. A few months later in August, a hiker found Marianne's skull in the forest near the mountainside. It had been decomposing throughout the hot summer months, but it was undeniably a human skull. Police set up an extensive search to find the rest of the body, but it was never recovered. Anita's body was never recovered. All the while, Ed Kemper prowled the streets for his next victim. On September 14, 1972, Ed drove around the Santa Cruz area until he spotted a 15-year-old ballet student named Aiko Koo. She had just missed her bus to dance class, so she decided to hitchhike along the side of the road. After picking her up, he drove her out to the wilderness. And when she realized they weren't heading in the right direction, she asked why they weren't going the right way. But at that point, Ed pulled a gun out and aimed it at her. He held her at gunpoint until they reached a remote area where no one was around. But as he got out of the car to open up the back door, he accidentally locked himself out. 
He had also left his gun in the front seat, and he knew he had just made a huge mistake, but controlled the situation like he always did. Once again, Ed turned on his charm and convinced her to unlock the car doors. She was either in shock with fear or didn't understand what was going on, but she decided to unlock the car for her future killer. As soon as the lock slipped up, he quickly threw open the back door and pounced on Aiko. After grabbing her neck and strangling her unconscious, he raped her and then strangled her to death. After he was finished, he stuffed her body into the trunk and took her back to his apartment to dismember her corpse. Once she was in pieces, he placed her body parts in bags and discarded her in the forest. Aiko's mother immediately noticed she had gone missing when she didn't return home that night. She frantically called police and put up hundreds of missing flyers around town, but no one ever responded to her or updated her on her daughter's missing persons report. Poor Aiko had simply disappeared without a trace. After Ed tossed Aiko's remains, he decided to lay low for a few months. He also ran into financial troubles and was forced to move back in with his mother. Even after their time apart, the relationship was still as toxic as ever. There was rarely a day that they got along. The arguments continued where they left off. And after all the screaming matches, Ed needed to blow off steam. So on January 7th, 1973, Ed went out driving near Cabrillo College campus, where he spotted 18-year-old Cindy Shaw hitchhiking on the side of the road. By now, he thought his system was foolproof, so he decided to stick to his usual plan. He drove her out to a wooded area, but this time he didn't strangle his victim. He just shot her point blank with his pistol and killed her instantly. Again, he placed the body in his trunk, but he couldn't return to his old place like he used to. He had to go back to his mother's house. So he made sure she wasn't home before dragging the body into his bedroom closet and leaving it there overnight. He then waited for his mother to leave for work the next morning before pulling the corpse out of the closet. He then proceeded to have sex with Cindy's dead body. He also reached into her open wound and dug around for the bullet from the day before. Once he felt it, he removed it so police couldn't trace the bullet back to him. He then dragged the corpse into his mother's bathtub where he hacked it to pieces with a power saw. And once the body parts were separated into bags, he hosed down the bathroom shower until all the dark red blood had flushed down the drain. He then decided to keep the severed head for a few days instead of discarding it with the rest of the body. After dumping the body parts off a cliff in the woods, he kept the head in his room where he had sex with it several times over the next few days. And when he was through, he went out to his mother's garden, where he dug a hole big enough for a head to fit. And he carefully placed Cindy's head into the hole. He made sure to angle the head so it was facing directly at his mother's bedroom window before burying it. Ed later said that he always wanted people looking up to his mother. Over the next few weeks, Cindy's remains were discovered in the forest except for her head and her right hand. The rest of her body was pieced together on an autopsy table. All the while, local police still had no idea who was behind these grisly murders. Luckily, they had picked up on the pattern of hitchhikers disappearing from the Santa Cruz area, and they believed that they had a possible serial killer on the loose. So to try and protect the hitchhikers, they spread the word telling people to only accept rides from people who had university stickers on their cars. But this would not stop Ed. In fact, his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. So he was able to get a sticker for his car. It was an easy loophole to find and it wasn't long before he was ready to kill again. On February 5th, 1973, Ed had another heated argument with his mother, one of many, and the fights with his mother fueled his desire to kill. So he headed out once again to the streets searching for another hitchhiker, where he actually ended up finding two. 
23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Liu. They were hanging out on the UCSC campus, and they needed a ride. And Ed gladly pulled over and welcomed them into his car. They noticed that he had a University of California Santa Cruz sticker on his window, so they thought it would be a safe ride. But just like his other victims, Ed drove them out into the remote wilderness. And when they were alone, Ed quickly shot both of them in the chest, killing them almost instantly. He wrapped their bodies in blankets and threw them in his trunk. But after driving home, he didn't bring the bodies inside. He discreetly cut off their heads and snuck them inside the house when no one was looking. Ed was absolutely obsessed with his victims' heads. He felt like they were his trophies. Ed remembered being told as a kid that if he cut the head off, the body dies. And the body is nothing without the head. But he later explained that that's not quite true. He later said that there's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. And after taking the heads inside his mother's house, he then had sex with them before returning them to the trunk of his car. And when the coast was clear, he dismembered the bodies in his mother's bathtub. And like the times before, he removed the bullets so that they couldn't be identified. By the next morning, he tossed their bodies in separate locations near Eden Canyon in Route 1. By now, police were no closer to catching Ed Kemper. But they actually made brief contact with him. Back at the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Station, a record clerk brought forward a file card that showed Ed had recently tried to buy a gun. Even though his record was expunged, one of the detectives could see through the blackout that Ed was involved in a previous murder. Two detectives were sent out to his mother's property where they came across Ed inside of his car in the driveway. They mentioned he owned an illegal firearm, and as Ed got out of the car, he towered over them. Slowly, Ed told them that the gun was in the trunk. He went to the back of the car and the officers put their hands on their firearms, ready to draw their weapons at a moment's notice. And when Ed opened it up, the trunk was spotless except for a bundle of rags where the weapon was hidden. The detectives noticed the trunk was clean. They took the weapon back to the station, but Ed still hadn't become a suspect, and the detectives didn't pursue him any further. But after his encounter with police, Ed was certain they were onto him, and he became extremely paranoid. He figured now was the time to set up his last, ultimate, kill. On April 20th, 1973, Ed slept quietly in his bedroom at his mother's house, and late in the night he heard commotion at the front door. His mother had stumbled in from a party she had gone to earlier in the night. She loudly walked into her bedroom, laid down, and opened up a book to read. Ed got up from his bed and walked over to his mother's room, and when she saw him walk into her doorway, she rudely said that he probably wanted to argue all night. Ed stared at her for a moment with rage growing behind his eyes. He simply told her no, good night, and returned to his room. He waited an hour or two until she finally went to bed, and he finally decided to do what he had been waiting to do for years. He grabbed a metal hammer and quietly snuck back into her room. The lights were off, and as he stood over her in the dark, he lifted up the hammer over his head, and he brought it down with as much force as he possibly could. And as the metal hammer struck her bones, she shrieked in pain. Blow after blow, he kept beating her until she was bloodied and bruised. He then took out a small pocket knife and put it to her throat. She had been beaten so badly she couldn't even speak, but she still was breathing. And with one last movement, Ed cut his mother's throat and waited for her to die. He stood over her and watched the blood pool into her bedsheets. And once she was dead, he finished the ritual. He cut off her head and had sex with it multiple times. His own mother. He then placed it on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, letting out all of his rage. 
He then picked up several darts and used her head as a dartboard across the room. And when he was done playing his games with her head, he smashed it in her face with his fist. He then took the pocket knife and sliced out her tongue and her vocal cords. He then took the mess in his hands and brought the tongue and vocal cords to the kitchen sink, where he put them down the garbage disposal and turned it on. The sink churned and cut through the bloody tongue, but it had difficulty breaking up the vocal cords, and it eventually spewed them out back into the sink. Ed thought this was fitting because of all the verbal abuse he had suffered over the years. Her vocal cords were nearly indestructible. As for her body, he didn't get rid of it immediately. He kept it in the closet while he left the house and went out to a nearby bar. When he got home later that night, he invited his mother's best friend over to the house, 59-year-old Sally Hallett. He figured he could make up a story for police where Sally and his mother went on a long vacation. So he invited her over for dinner and a movie, which Sally thought was odd at first, but she accepted. And when she walked into the house, her fate was sealed. Ed quickly attacked her and began choking her. He pushed his thumbs into her neck until she couldn't breathe, and she fell to her knees as he gripped her throat, and she quickly died. He stuffed her corpse into the closet and cleaned up the scene, and before he left, he wrote a note for police to find, and this is what it said. Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents just a lack of time. I got things to do. He then got into his car and fled the scene. He then drove nonstop all the way to Pueblo, Colorado, which Pueblo was like maybe like two hours south of Denver. And while he was on the road, he took caffeine pills to stay awake for the thousand mile journey ahead. And with him, he stocked three guns and hundreds of bullets in his car. From his paranoia, he had convinced himself that he was the target of an active manhunt. But as he listened to the radio, there was no news about it. And when he finally got to Pueblo, the body still hadn't been discovered. But his anxiety and paranoia got the best of him. And he began freaking out. Completely exhausted, he decided to call the police from a payphone in Pueblo. There, he quickly confessed to the murders of his mother and her friend. But the police thought it was a prank call and they didn't take him seriously. They just told him to call back at a later time. So Ed didn't know what to do. So he waited around for a few hours and called them back. He asked to speak to an officer he knew personally so they would take him seriously this time. Once this officer was on the line, he told him he hadn't slept for several days and he had done something terrible. Again, Ed confessed to the murders of his mother and her friend and he waited patiently at the payphone for the police to come and take him into custody. Meanwhile, police officers broke into a back window at Ed's mother's house and searched for the bodies. When they opened up one of the closets, they immediately saw hair, and blood covering everything. After they arrested Ed, he quickly confessed to all six of the other murders around Santa Cruz. And from that moment on, Ed Kemper was known as the co-ed killer. He later showed them the locations of where he killed his victims and how he killed them. And when asked why he turned himself in, he said the original purpose of the killings was gone. He no longer felt like he had any physical, real, or emotional purpose. And it was just a waste of time. He said that he couldn't handle it emotionally either, and by the end of it, he felt that the whole thing was worthless. After nearly collapsing from exhaustion and paranoia in Pueblo, he decided to call it off. And that leads us to May 7, 1973, when Ed Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder, 
Since he had given police such a detailed confession of all of his murders, his only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And while they held him in custody, he tried to kill himself twice. But a few months later, his trial began on October 23, 1973. And during his trial, three appointed psychiatrists found Ed to be legally sane. He confessed to one of the psychiatrists that he had in fact cooked and eaten some of the victim's flesh after adding it to a casserole dish. Regardless, the psychiatrists believed that Ed wasn't insane and he knew exactly what he was doing. Ed later confessed that he lied about eating the flesh of his victims. He thought it would have been a good story to convince the psychiatrist that he was insane, but it didn't work. And in the end, the psychiatrist agreed. Kemper was fully in control of his actions. When he took the stand on November 1st, he testified that he killed the victims because he wanted them for himself, like trophies. He tried to convince the jury that his actions could have been committed by an insane person. He even tried to convince them that two people were living inside of him. One of them was a killer personality that took control, and it felt like blacking out. But as many defenses like this go, it wasn't enough to convince the jury. And on November 8th, 1973, the jury declared Ed Kemper sane and found him guilty of all eight murder counts, and he was given eight life sentences for his horrendous crimes. Ed was imprisoned in the California Medical Facility on the same prison block as Charles Manson. He was known to intimidate other prisoners because of his size. By this point, he was six foot nine and over 220 pounds. He towered over the other inmates, and he had to duck under doorways. And when the other inmates found out what he did, he seemed like a giant, real-life monster. But as time went on, the other inmates and prison staff found that Ed was surprisingly gentle and well-mannered. And like so many serial killers, he became known as a model prisoner. He took a job scheduling other appointments inmates had with psychiatrists, and he enjoyed crafting ceramic cups in his free time. He also joined a prison program and spent over 5,000 hours narrating audiobooks. And since he had become such a popular serial killer, he also spent much of his time participating in several interviews for documentaries and FBI profilers. He was known to be open about his crimes, and he said he hoped that his interviews would save others like him from going down the same path. But I was losing a grasp on something that was too violent to keep inside forever. As I'm sitting there with a severed head in my hand, talking to it, or looking at it, and I'm about to go crazy, literally. I'm about to go completely flywheel loose and just fall apart. I say, wow, this is insane. And then I told myself, no, it isn't. You're saying that, and that makes it not insane. I said, I'm sane, and I'm looking at a severed... I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see old paintings and drawings of Viking heroes talking to severed heads and taking them to parties, old enemies and leather bags, part of our heritage. I didn't go hog wild and totally limp. What I'm saying is I found myself doing things in an attempt to make things fit together inside. I was doing sexual probings and things. I mean, in the sense of striking out and reaching out and grabbing and pulling to me, but appalled at the sense that it wasn't working. That isn't the way it's supposed to be. It isn't the way I want it. See what I'm saying? I am an American, and I killed Americans. I am a human being, and I killed human beings, and I did it in my society. Despite his good behavior in prison, he was denied parole countless times. The parole board wasn't quick to forget his horrific crimes just because he had some good behavior in prison, and they knew that he could put on a good mask, just like he had done with the psychiatrist when he was younger. He was recently denied parole in 2017, but Ed Kemper will be eligible for another parole hearing in 2024. As for his jobs in prison, he had to retire from these positions in 2015 after suffering a massive stroke. In such poor condition, he was declared physically disabled. 
He now struggles with any sort of movement or activity, and his perfect record for no rule violations came to an end in 2016 when he failed to provide a urine sample. So Ed Kemper is known as a model prisoner and a well-spoken amateur psychiatrist in prison, but no one will forget the horrific murders he committed in the early 1970s. Killers like Ed Kemper are one of the reasons we're warned never to hitchhike with strangers. His victims were free-spirited students who trusted in the good nature of strangers. They soon realized that some strangers can be horrible people with cruel intentions, and Ed played on people's trust and turned it into a sick game for his own personal desires. His crimes were deranged and disgusting, and as much as he has tried to put on a good face and act like a role model prisoner, no one will soon forget his horrific crimes. And Ed Kemper will be forever known as one of the most perverted serial killers of all time. It's tough to, to get a read on Ed Kemper because I do understand that his childhood was very abusive. He went through a lot, but at the same time, I almost feel that he was just born to kill evil, just born evil. And sort of being you know raised in that environment only triggered that evil nature that was already in him. Yeah, and then not being able to connect with peers or women and yeah, as all, we all see with many issues. serial killers, it's yeah, like, like it's, BTK killer, yeah, and plenty more. But that like they can't go out in the world and interact with women normally and have normal relationships just like the rest of us, and instead they have to to force it to happen. Yeah, but then there's this sexual, weird sexual side to it that none of us can understand that has to do with control over the individual and there's just something innately evil about that that yeah. they end up chasing that that rush that adrenaline rush they get definitely well what's crazy to me is he had enough social skills to be able to mingle with police officers at the bar and they had no, no suspicion idea. yeah that's a great point he had enough charisma and just social skills to get along with probably mostly male police officers i would imagine yeah. especially at the bar uh, in this time period and he went for probably one of the easiest victims at the time for those you know that were just kind of i don't know what the right term for it is but go with the flow and you know so the hippie movement yeah and so people just weren't really worried about that or thinking about that at the time but he took full advantage of that and I mean, hitchhiking is a scary thing. I'm surprised people even still do hitchhiking today. I know. I mean, I, I don't think I've seen a woman hitchhiking in, I'm trying to even think, it's been years probably since I've seen yeah. a woman hitchhiking. But every now and then I'll see a, a man walking down the side of the road and then they'll stop and turn around and, you know, put their thumb up. But yeah, yeah hitchhiking is extremely dangerous. I Very mean, risky. It definitely opens you up to possibility of something bad happening because yeah. you just never know who's going to come pick you up especially in this day and age i mean there's evil people everywhere definitely people looking for opportunities to do heinous crimes to people and yeah it's just i mean it's just not worth it at the end of the day mm -hmm. but yeah it's especially interesting watching back his interviews too and just how like vocal he is about this and the fact that he literally turned himself in i mean it seems like ultimately like with many serial killers they do eventually want to be caught yeah and they want to be recognized for what they did. And also a lot of them want the opportunity to give a full confession and be able to talk about all these things that they did because that's kind of like, I'm sure it's like the final rush for them, you mm -hmm. know, to be able to talk through in detail of everything that they did and speak on it. Yeah. Um, sort of like 
kind of confirms it from mm-hmm. i don't i don't know it's just it's fucking bizarre yeah and it makes sense how his fuel for killings was his anger towards his mother and then yeah a lot of know, it was stemmed from that for sure yeah and then once you know he killed her he was like all right that's that's yeah, enough just never really knew how to deal with that anger or yeah you know, never got the the proper help that someone like that needs when mm-hmm. growing up in that kind of situation and just spiraled out of control he started off with the cats and then realized that the cats gave him a, a a thrill and then he just upped it from there i mean thank god he did turn himself in because yeah. he probably would have kept on killing had probably. He not. i mean he seemed like police had no fucking clue about him Mm-mm. as oftentimes the police back then were just clueless about these things they didn't know how to track down a serial killer during this time there wasn't that technology and uh, sharing of information that there is now that was kind of this unknown thing to them in, a, mm-hmm. in many ways and and he used his appearance very well. I mean, he looks like right. A, he looks like just an average normal, guy, normal, nice guy. He's like this big, big like, dude. He seems gentle yeah. and like a gentle giant, basically. Right. Yeah. So you just would never know that he can turn on you in oh, just an yeah. instant. So, Master manipulator, scary man. As many ki- serial killers are, I mean, they're people that you would never know would be capable of doing the things that they do. And it's just like, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think especially after you know recently covering like a serial killer episode i'm like i wonder if i've ever come across a serial killer in the public or just a killer in public before i yeah, just had no idea it does make me wonder and you know i i don't know it's it's interesting because nowadays you don't hear too often about serial killers it seems like with the age of technology and the internet it's become more and more difficult for serial killers to exist they do of course still exist but it's become much more difficult with cameras and the internet and everything and and as opposed to back then, it was much easier to sort of fly under the radar. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I wonder if we're going to, I mean, hopefully not. Uh, hopefully we never have to experience another serial killer like Ed Kemper, but it sometimes makes me wonder. I'm like, is there others like Ed out there? Mm. I'm sure there are. Yeah, it's possible. They just and haven't been caught yet. They just haven't been caught. Yeah. yeah. It's really wild, man. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. And of course, I just want to, you know, with all serial killers, I mean, it's like it's one thing to talk about this guy and it's horrible horrible things that he did it's just it's always important to remember that the victims were real people they were daughters of fathers and mothers and they were they were completely innocent and this should have never happened and you know it's just always good to remember that you know it's not just about this crazy story about this crazy guy that did this but ultimately innocent people lost their lives and it's important to remember those that did But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there with a little tribute to the victims because they are the ones that should never be forgotten. Ed Kemper, he can be forgotten. But I'll see you guys next time. 